This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Worldview Podcast. Perspectives on world events from the Irish Times and our network of correspondents around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. In the wake of Saturday's horrific bombing in Ankara, in which at least 97 people died, although the opposition HDP has put the death toll at 128, either way, the deadliest bombing in Turkish history, uh, we ask who was responsible and who benefits from the increased polarisation of Turkish society, and who benefits from the country's return to civil war with its Kurdish population. Would the November election have anything to do with it? And where do recent developments in the country and the region leave Turkey's relationship with the EU and with NATO? But first to Jordan. Our correspondent Ruin McCormack is just back from visit to the country to see its refugee camps now brimming over with refugees from Syria. Or are they? The EU has pledged at least 1 billion euros for Syrian refugees, mostly in Turkey, Jordan and the Lebanon. Partly, uh, this is to discourage them from coming on to Europe. And is this strategy working? Now, Rune, you've just returned from Jordan where you visited a refugee camp and you spoke to Syrian refugees who have opted to live outside the camps. What is life like for a Syrian refugee in Jordan? Well, Paddy, the first thing to say is that we're talking about an awful lot of people here. Um, According to the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, 630,000 Syrians are living in in Jordan. Uh, The Jordanian government puts the figure much higher at close to 1.4 million. But whichever is closer to the truth, we're talking about Jordan having taken in huge numbers of of Syrians over the last four years, Um, especially when you consider that the Jordanian population is only about uh, 6.5 million people. Now, broadly speaking, the Syrian refugees are in two groups in Jordan. Uh, About 20% of them are in uh, refugee camps and the 80% are living outside the camps in urban settings in towns and cities across uh, Jordan and and they're somewhat below the radar for that that reason. For those in the camps, the situation is is, uh, relatively stable, albeit difficult. Um, I went to Azraq camp, which is in Jordan's northeastern desert, um, about 90 kilometres from the Syrian border and about the same distance from Amman, so it's quite remote. Now, Azraq was built last year to take some of the pressure off Zatari, um, this huge camp close to the Syrian border, which at its peak housed 130,000 people. So Azraq was built expressly to avoid recreating um, the mistakes of Zatari, which included, for example, a crime problem, poor quality accommodation, overcrowding and so on. So at Azraq, you have these symmetrical rows of steel huts, which are quite well built, um, about 10,000 of them. Um, They're better suited to the wind, to the extreme temperatures in the desert. Um, There's a police station on site so that the camp is more secure than Zatari is. Um, And in an effort to foster a sense of community spirit, they've clustered people by the region or town they come from in Syria. So the quarter of the camp population, for example, that come from Dara, the city in the south, they tend to live in the same village in the camp. The same goes for people from uh, Aleppo or or Homs, which also have big representations at at Azraq. Um, When you visit, you can clearly see the effort that's been made to to make this an orderly, clean place to live. Uh, There are two playgrounds, there are two schools, there are hospitals, um, there's a well-stocked supermarket, 
market. People are given uh, food vouchers every day by the World Food Programme so that they can get to the supermarket um, and buy their food. They're also given some bread daily uh, on top of that. But it is a tough place to live. Um, the allowance is pretty low. Uh, it comes to about 25 euro, the equivalent of 25 euro a month. There's a lack of privacy. There's no electricity in the camp yet. Um, and the shelters can be quite cramped, especially for uh, for large families. So it's perhaps not much of a surprise that since it opened last year, uh, it's estimated that about 20,000 people have left Azraq, either by simply walking out into the desert and um, making their way to one of the towns or cities nearby, or simply by, by taking authorised leave and, and not returning. Um, now, most of those people who leave, they end up in that second group I was talking about, people who uh, are living in urban settings in, in Jordan. And that's by far the more vulnerable of the two groups. The UNHCR estimates that about 86% of those non-camp Syrians uh, are living below the poverty line, which is about 2 $3 a day. Um, I met families in the suburbs of Amman who had no source of income whatsoever. They had landlords knocking on the door every day looking for, for the rent and threatening to uh, evict them. Um, the situation is then compounded by the chronic shortages that the aid agencies suffer from. So they can only offer their uh, aid to a certain number. I think in the UNHCR's case, it's 22,000 uh, refugees, refugee families who they can help directly. So the others are on waiting lists and so on. Um, so, so they're in a, in a very difficult situation. Um, I met a mother and daughter, for example, who are on that waiting list. They have no source of income. They're looking, facing into this winter with real concerns about how they're going to get by. Uh, they haven't even got a heater. They're hoping that they might be able to put together enough money uh, either to return to Syria, which is something that more and more people are doing, or to perhaps attempt uh, the journey to Europe. But, uh, but for people like that, that, that in itself is a far off prospect. And do you get a sense that a very large proportion of them want to make the next step by taking, taking on the journey to Europe? Um, it, it depends on the on the family. You tend to find that people with a, a little bit of money are, are thinking about going to Europe. And you have this classic migration story where the, there tends to be one member of the family, let's say uh, an educated son, who is sent to Europe or sent to attempt the journey to Europe in the hope that he will then go and establish himself in Europe, maybe get a job uh, and be in a position then later to, to, uh, to, to receive the rest of the family and, and put them up. Um, the more disturbing trend is that there's been a, a marked increase uh, in the last while, in the last year, according to the UNHCR and others in, Sir in Jordan, of Syrians who have been in Jordan uh, who feel that their life is so desperate there that they want to go back to Syria. Um, and clearly there's no security rationale for this. The situation is as bad, if not worse, than it ever has been in the last four years. Um, but th th there are at least, according to the UN, 100 people who cross back into Syria every day. Um, and that outnumbers the, the flow in the other direction, which is about 40 to 60 people a day. But you, you wrote today that the flow of Syrian refugees into Jordan has slowed uh, this year. And, and why is that? Um, well, first, some people are going to Europe, as we were saying, either by land via Turkey or, or by air through uh, Lebanon. Um, and that, that, that story I, I mentioned is very common, the idea that a, a one member of the family will go and try to receive the others later on. Um, but the second reason is that it, it is becoming more difficult to cross the border from, from Syria into Jordan. Um, and there are a few different factors behind that. The obvious one is that the fighting is very intense on the Syrian side of the border um, and there, there, there's no sign of it abating. 
Um, so if you're, for example, if you're in Aleppo or, or Homs, which have been really badly destroyed during the war, there was a, I mean, a lot of people in Jordan come from those cities, um, but it's extremely difficult at the moment to make that journey. You're talking about a seven, eight day journey uh, down to the border and fewer people perhaps are, are taking that the risk of, of that journey. But in addition to that, the Jordanian authorities are making it more difficult to cross. Um, the reason they give is that they say they're concerned that uh, Islamist radicals uh, pass themselves off as refugees and, and attempt to get into Jordan uh, in that way. But others would say that Jordan is simply trying to staunch the flow of Syrians uh, into the country because it feels it has taken in um, more than its its share of the burden already. And there's a dispute going on actually at the moment between the United States and Jordan over um, a group, uh, quite a large group of Syrians who are on the border, but the US says on the Jordanian side of that border. The US says there are 3,000 people there, displaced Syrians who are stranded with no proper food or shelter, and they accuse the Jordanians of not allowing them in in effect. The Jordanians say the number is much smaller, that it's about a thousand, and that it's not the case that they have stopped them entering, rather that the, the flow has been slowed down because they're afraid of uh, Islamists being in that group. Now, the problem for the West, of course, is that even if it's correct that Jordan is keeping Syrians on its uh, border and not letting them in, uh, it's difficult to take the high moral ground when Western states have done comparatively little to um, address the, 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 the situation of, of uh, Syrian refugees in Europe and elsewhere. Um, but there's another reason why it's difficult to, for the West to pick a fight over this, and that is that um, Jordan is a very important ally for the West in the region. Uh, it's arguably the only Sunni state in the region that is fully behind the fight against ISIS. And I think the West uh, will do everything to avoid an open confrontation with Jordan over the refugees. Um, and and so the, the fact that there are so many Syrians then crossing back into into uh, Jordan just makes all of this much more difficult too. Yeah. And uh, is there internal pressures on, in, in Jordan as a result of this? Is it politically uh, difficult for the regime? Um, the regime says that it's under immense pressure, and I think there's no arguing with the fact that it has taken in at least 600,000, according to the UNHCR, up to 1.4 million people in its own, by its own estimate. Mm -hmm. There's no question but that that will put a uh, put a, uh, a strain on, on the state. And there are um, constituencies within Jordanian society that are saying we've taken in far more than we should, and the burden should be shared more equally around the region and elsewhere. Um, so Jordan is undoubtedly under pressure, but there's also a suspicion that Jordan has an interest in talking up the pressure it's under. Um, it would be easier, I think, for Amman to argue that it couldn't deal with any more people were, were we not faced with a situation where Azraq is only one third full, for example. I mean, clearly there is capacity uh, for more people in the camps. There are 25,000 refugees in Azraq. It has capacity for 50,000 at the moment with the shelters it has built. And it has space and infrastructure for about three times that number. Um, so it's certainly true that Jordan can take all the help it can get. Jordan doesn't produce a great deal. It doesn't have oil. It doesn't have natural resources. Its two main sources of income are aid and re aid and remittances. So I think it certainly has uh, a need for help. And it would be understandable if Jordan was was looking for all the, the help it could get. Um, what's also true is that Jordan has immense leverage. Um, as I mentioned, it's one of the West's few allies in the region. It's a, a rare Sunni ally in the region. Um, and you can be sure that as long as Jordan needs help, whether that help 
whether that need is exaggerated or not, it will continue to receive it. And you can tell us about the international aid. I, I know you were out with uh, an Irish minister. Is is there a substantial uh, Irish contribution to the the refugee problem there? Yeah, Ireland is a, a significant contributor to organisations such as the UNHCR. It's a, it provides core funding to the UNHCR and over the last few years a great deal of that money has gone to uh, Lebanon and Jordan and other states in the region that are taking a lot of the burden. Um, while I was out there actually um, a discussion took place between Sean Sherlock, the Minister of State with responsibility for over, uh, overseas aid and a, a, an Irish representative as it happened of uh, UNICEF and in effect, they struck a deal while we were out there, whereby there, there's a there's a borehole that has been dug about four or five kilometres away from uh, Azraq camp, and there's a real problem in transporting the water from the borehole to the camp. And so their discussions have begun on um, Ireland funding a pipeline that would bring the water to the camp. And clearly, that would, uh, if it comes to fruition, that would have a, a major effect on quality of life in the camp. Thank you very much, Ruth. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now we go to Stephen Starr in Istanbul and Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. President Erdogan says Saturday's suicide bombing was undertaken by terrorists. He blames uh, Islamic State, although he regards them as no different from the Kurds and the militants of the PKK. The demonstrators in opposition blame Erdogan and the deep state and and or right-wing nationalists. No one has claimed responsibility. Stephen, any emerging clarity? And the, the confusion is very much part of the perpetrator's purpose to create chaos. Is that right? Yeah, that seems to be the case, Horizon. There's been no sense of any... Uh, details in terms of responsibility emerging just yet. Uh, there's been a, a confidentiality order issued by the Ankara Chief Public Prosecutor in relation to information coming out about uh, who's responsible. But we're hearing from Turkey's Deputy Prime Minister that they're getting closer and closer to finding out who the perpetrators are. At the same time, they're saying that it could be uh, Islamic State, they're saying that it could be uh, uh, the PKK or affiliated organizations uh, to that, or it could even be the uh, leftist organization known as the Revolutionary People's Liberation Party Front, which has in recent months also carried out attacks on uh, government and police uh, targets uh, in Istanbul and in, in Ankara as well. Um, But it seems unlikely that a leftist organization uh, and or the PKK were involved in in Saturday's bombing, uh, seeing as a targeted activists and supporters of the HDP. And the HDP is this uh, Kurdish-aligned amalgamation of Kurdish uh, uh, politicians that that got together this year and for the first time uh, won entry to uh, Turkey's parliament. Which, uh, which is important to, to point out as well, is that it cost uh, the AK party, whose former leader was uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, it cost them their majority in parliament, meaning that they couldn't push forward uh, laws and, and regulations as they were able to do for the last 12 years or so. Um, uh, since June, uh, we've seen uh, crackdowns of various, uh, bigger, I suppose you can say, on uh, uh, Kurdish politicians, uh, we've seen attacks on um, uh, offices of the HDP right across the country. 
Uh, we've seen a large-scale military operation on PKK militants in and around Iraq. We've seen uh, a number of curfews and uh, besiegements by the, uh, the Turkish military in Kurdish towns around the Syrian and Iraqi border. So there's certainly a sense among Kurds, the, the, the Kurdish uh, political uh, elite, and also among Kurds, uh, Kurdish civilians, that they are under attack from the government. And Saturday's attack, uh, at least in the eyes of Kurds in Turkey, uh, gives a sense that uh, that uh, that the the government and the AK party are in some degree involved. Now we don't know, of course, to what degree that could be the case, or what what degree people uh, are speculating very much. Uh, but at the very least. People are saying that this is an extreme uh, lack or extreme um, uh, absence of security, given that this uh, had been a long uh, expected rally, that there will be thousands of people there, and that uh, that security for these people, who were for the most part anti-government, was generally lacking, if not absent. The PKK has called a ceasefire, but the government doesn't appear to be interested. It seems to be the case, all right. But we're hearing this morning that there was at least uh, there was at least one police officer uh, killed in an in an attack in South uh, East Turkey. Now, inside the PKK itself, there is a, a, a youth branch, a militant branch, if we can call it a militant branch of the PKK, that has been acting not independently, but has been a kind of a rogue element within the PKK. Uh, this group has been the main target for Kurdish security forces, and when I mentioned that they've been besieging towns uh, in and around the Syrian border, it's these, it's these guys that they're targeting uh, as opposed to the PKK inside Turkey itself. Um, so there's, there's no sense that, that we're going to, you know, there's no sense that there's going to be, we're going to hear much uh, news, uh, of, certainly in terms of responsibility today, it seems. Um, speaking of the, HP, the HDP co-chair, Saladin Demirtas, who is, I guess, the figurehead for the, uh, the HDP uh, and the Kurds and liberals in Turkey, um, he has rather exasperated, been ex- exasperated by the fact that um, in previous attacks, uh, there was an attack on his party's rally in June. Uh, no one has been uh, found responsible for that. No one has been charged even for that, and also for an attack on a group of youth activists in Surich in southeast Turkey, in which 34 people were killed in July. But no one either has been found responsible or charged for that attack. The, so his, yeah, yeah, the, there's no doubt, um, if we ask the question, who benefits, um, th- that it would suit IS uh, strategically to pit the Kurds against the government. I think that's the case, because they're, they're, they're opponents in, in both regards. Um, but in, you know, we've, in various cases, IS has claimed responsibility for for bombings. In other times, it's claimed responsibility for bombings which it didn't, in fact, uh, carry out. Um, what's interesting and inevitable, in a sense, is that because there's been because the the Turkish-Syrian border had been relatively open from between 2011 until about last year, that you had a lot of Turkish people. Uh, well, at least it was very easy for Turkish people who wanted to go to, to Syria, and also the op- uh, in the opposite direction uh, for that to happen, which meant that uh, an element of extremism and jihadism related to uh, the Islamic State was able to operate, open and operate cells in Turkey, particularly in the southeast, and even among uh, uh, conservative Kurds. 
the main reason for that is that you, you've got a lot of, of young people who can't find jobs in, in these cities in southeast Turkey. And they're seen to be relatively uh, easy targets for uh, uh, IS, uh, IS members who are looking to recruit them. Now, of course, It's a lot easier for a, for a Turkish national to get into uh, city center square on, as it was the case on Saturday morning and, uh, and plant an explosive or carry out a suicide bombing. So this is the reason perhaps that ISIS is using uh, Turkish uh, youth to, uh, to carry out uh, attacks on its behalf for the reasons that you've, you've mentioned just now. Um, how, how is the bombing going to play into the November elections? Is it still likely to produce deadlock? And is the country becoming, as the Financial Times suggested yesterday, ungovernable? In a sense, that you could argue it is, particularly in the southeast regions. I mean, I was talking to people in, in towns that had been under siege by the military and curfews. They have since been lifted. That people in, in these towns feel like, you know, come November 1, election day, that it won't be physically possible to reach the, the, the polling stations. And uh, for the most part, these are people who would not vote for the government. Um, you know, but the, at the same time, Salah Hedin Demirtas, the co-chair of the HDP, has said that he wants the election to go ahead, even at the fact that he said that there won't be any campaigning from his party because of the extreme danger uh, he and his followers seem to be under. Um, and the point being that he wants to, he wants the election to go ahead because uh, there's a sense that if the election is put off, that the AK party uh, could further could gain further support amongst the electors. It doesn't seem you know it hasn't worked over the last few months or since the last election, and it doesn't seem that uh, people are going to switch sides at this stage. The, the polling suggests that the HDP will, will manage in or around the same number of votes as it did in the June election, about 6 million or about 13% of, of parliamentary seats, uh, and, and that the AK party will win in around the, the, the same 42-43% uh, of, of votes too. So, you know, the net result of how this plays into the, the election seems to be the net result being that We're seeing more and more people killed and, uh, and the country much more polarized. Uh, if and at the same time that there's going to be no major change in terms of, of parliamentary politics and, and who gets in and who is forced out. Now, Suzanne, um, Erdogan was in Brussels uh, last week trying to build bridges and Turkey's role in supporting the fight against IS in, in Syria has shifted attitudes in Europe, but our allies in NATO are, are perturbed by his single-minded determination that Assad is the real enemy and his attacks on the Kurds. Uh, he, there's a certain ambivalence in his attitude towards IS. Uh, how's he playing in, in Brussels these days? Yes, well, in many ways, it, it was coincidental um, that Erdogan was visiting Brussels last week. He cancelled a previous trip a few weeks, a, a few years ago, um, but he arrived here for, for a two-day visit. He also visited Strasbourg. Um, and it, it coincided with a period of ref reflection, I think, in Europe about its relationship uh, with Turkey. And, and quite simply, um, the refugee crisis has, has put 
Turkey back into uh, focus for a lot of uh, European countries. Obviously, Turkey has become the main transit route uh, between uh, Syria and the European Union. So there's been a growing sense here that the European Union, in its bid to kind of look outwards um, for a solution to the refugee crisis, I mean, Donald Tusk, the head of the European Council, has been pushing this, trying to get away from the internal squabbling we saw about dividing uh, refugee numbers between countries. It's now saying, right, we need to look outside of the, at, the, at the root causes of this. So engagement with Turkey has become a, an, an obvious focus uh, for this. And, and some of that is about persuading the Turks not to push people on towards the European borders. Yes. There, there is an issue um, around numbers. Er, Erdogan here was... He presented to the press alongside uh, Donald Tusk, and he, he made the point, well, we have taken two million uh, refugees, and, you know, the numbers that Europe are talking about are pitiful, no, and no one could argue with that. Um, but how uh, Europe can work together with Turkey on this uh, remains to be seen. They are suspicious that a lot of um, migrant smugglers are working out of Turkey that are encouraging um, Syrian refugees to move on through uh, Europe. Um, obviously, a lot of the migrants are coming across to the islands like Kos are coming directly uh, from Turkey. Now, they've offered uh, additional financial support um, and they've also launched an action plan that they're hoping will be um, endorsed by Ankara. But I think in terms of the relationship, there's been a power shift in a sense. There is a sense with this crisis that, you know, the Euro- Europe kind of needs Turkey on board for this. But Turkey is looking for, for, for things uh, in exchange. Um, obviously, the negotiation uh, negotiations between the EU and Turkey on membership have been have stalled essentially officially they started a decade ago um, but Turkey is looking for um, more progress on this and in particular uh, the issue of visa liberalization um, it is looking uh, to get greater visa, greater access for its people essentially into the European Union um, but the European Union, particularly countries like Germany, are very against this um, so it, it remains to be seen what Erdogan is, is going to want uh, in exchange for this kind of greater partnership in dealing with the refugee crisis Now, uh, Ruin uh, the, there's a sort of contradiction in European attitude, EU attitudes towards Erdogan. On the one hand they recognise Turkey's strategic importance and they recognise that Turkey is key to solving some of these refugee issues but they're, they're very worried about uh, Erdogan's tr- uh, increasingly autocratic approach uh, how, how is that being reconciled? That's true and I think this bombing shines a spotlight on what is Turkey's really quite ambiguous position um, in the war in Syria and it could actually bring to a head the internal contradictions in that position which you've mentioned already. In other words, Erdogan has tried to hedge his bets in Syria. Uh, He allows coalition aircraft to use uh, Turkish airspace. He allows US aircraft to use Excuse me, a, a base in southern southern Turkey as a launch pad for uh, their uh, strikes in Syria. Um, yet at the same time, Turkey tacitly helps the Islamists by uh, allowing them pass through, through the country, allowing them to cross the the 500 kilometer porous uh, border with Syria. Um, it's also thought to be arming other Islamist groups uh, indirectly, at least, and its offensive against the Kurds uh, also helps uh, Islamist groups across across Syria. So at best, Turkey is, has turned a blind eye to, to some of what's been going on within Syria in its attempt to undermine Assad and, and ensure he, he goes. But now you have the war spirit, spilling into, into Turkey and not only spilling into the, re, the, the border region, but into the heart of, of uh, Turkish power in, in Ankara, uh, very far from the southern border. So 
I think the bombing could well bring these contradictions to a head, um, not least at a time when the Russian intervention is uh, complicating matters considerably for Turkey and for other regional players. Okay, well, that's it for this week from our worldview. Thanks to Ruan McCormick, Stephen Starr and Suzanne Lynch, and Sinead O'Shea, who's produced, and Gary White, who did sound.